I'm glad I'm back with you tonight. This is the last time that I get to speak with you, but hopefully not the last time we, we spend time together. Um, it, so just to kind of think back through last week, we talked about how relationships build and then how they function as they go on. Uh, so tonight we're going to get a little bit deeper into what it looks like to build a great, mar- a great marriage. You know, here's the thing. Anybody can get married, right? That's a reality. Any two people can go out there and get a marriage license and get hitched. But not everybody can have a great marriage. And that, there's a big distinction between those two things. Getting married is easy. Having a great marriage is a lot of hard work. And so, again, I just want to reiterate to you that the, the time and energy you're putting into this is so incredible. And we hope it won't be the last time you invest in your marriage. Um, this church is building a marriage ministry that we hope will reach you at every point in your marriage, no matter what that is. And we want to meet people where they are. So I hope that you will all stay plugged in as you go through and you, you grow together. Um, I do, before I get started, I, I meant to do this. I, I need to apologize. Um, Peter? I think I offended you last week. I offended your marker. I promise you I will use the fat side from this point forward. I know that it was probably my fault and in the spirit of reconciliation because I want to model what that looks like. I'm sorry. It's very big of you. (laughs) It won't ever happen again, okay? All right. I'm glad we cleared that up. I hadn't seen Peter since last week, so. Um, so when I, when I first got married, um, I really kind of had this idea that, like, I knew what I was doing. Um, and that was kind of reinforced by the, the nature of the relationship that Melissa and I had together. So let me kind of paint the picture for you. Melissa had, when we first got married, she just finished nursing school and she had just passed her NCLEX and took her first job as a nurse, an RN, in a neonatal intensive care unit in Little Rock, Arkansas. And we lived in Searcy. So what that meant was three to four days and nights a week, Melissa would be gone. She, was, she would drive one hour down to Little Rock, so she'd leave at about... 5.30 in the afternoon. Uh, she'd get there at 6.30, clock in, and then there were times where she didn't clock out until 8 o'clock and we'd get home around 9 o'clock, okay? So then she would sleep all day. Well, from my perspective, we were doing really good because what that meant was I still got to hang out with all of my buddies from college the ones that were still in town. I was playing video games all night whenever I wanted to. I went to school like, you know, three days a week, and the other two days I could go fishing. I could, I could spend time with anybody, right? For me, life was great. I got, you know, I had the time with my wife, but then I also had this time that I could just do whatever I wanted to, right? Right? 
And I, I didn't like abuse that, you know, nothing bad happened in the midst of that. But something that was really interesting was two years after we got married, Melissa stopped working nights and I saw what the reality of being married with somebody who was with you every day was like. And so we hit some bumps two years in, and I'm sitting there going, what the heck? I thought everything was great, right? Like, things are, this is not our relationship. I didn't realize how me getting to do everything I wanted to do and living the life that I wanted to live, I was choosing me, not the relationship. So tonight, we're going to talk about choosing us. And what I had to learn to do was not choose me anymore and not be selfish anymore by doing all the things that I wanted to do, like hanging out with my friends and playing video games and all of that. But I had to choose us. And that's a very different choice to make. So that's, that's what I'm going to talk to you about tonight. You know, I think that, um, that when we think about marriage, we know what the terms are from a worldly perspective, right? We know what that means. But what what question we really need to be asking are, what are God's terms? What is God asking of us from a basic assumption, from a premise of, of the condition of our heart that says, I choose us, not I choose me, okay? So let me just, Peter, can I borrow your marker? <laughs> this is not the same one. Yeah, you had a purple one last week. I see what's going on here. Okay, so, uh, so I'm going to share with you something here that I think can be helpful in, in sort of wrapping our minds around a, a Christ-centered perspective of what choosing us means, okay? Who is familiar with uh, Samuel Truett Kathy? Who knows who that is? Okay, who is it? Not you, Tara. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Founder of Chick-fil-A. Yeah, that's right. Founder of Chick-fil-A. He had, uh, he, so, so Truett Cathy was known to, to say, we are a youth ministry or we're a ministry disguised as a restaurant. Okay? So their idea was, how can we do something that we do really well, which is make chicken, and how can we use that opportunity to reach the lives of the people that we are that are working for us and that ultimately we also serve every day? Okay? So they developed this idea that you probably have experienced at Chick-fil-A. And this is a, a corporate corporate idea. 2M 2N. Has anybody heard of this? No? This is what it stands for. Second mile. Second nature. So let me flesh this out for you, okay? Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 41. Somebody want to go there for me and read it? Who's got it? I got it. Go ahead. Matthew five forty one. Yep. 
whosoever shall compel thee to go one mile, go with him too. Okay, now we're talking about a section here where Jesus is taking some of the uh, laws of the land and he's extending not the requirement, but his request of people to say, if somebody tells you to go one mile, you go two. Now, what does he mean by that? In the Roman Empire, a Roman soldier could compel any person who was not a Roman citizen to carry their equipment one mile. They could not compel them to go any further. This was something that the Jews hated because because it was hot in this area of, of the world, because the equipment was heavy. And to carry that equipment for one mile for somebody meant that they had to go well out of their way they had to stop what they were doing. Their jobs were, you know, where, where they were maybe, um, I don't know, Pharisees or people, teachers of the law who felt like they should be in, t- in the temple and had more important things to do. They had to leave their post and carry that equipment for one mile. And what did that do? That, that put a damper on the day, I'm sure. Okay. Not to mention all of the other potential things that could happen, like they could come into contact with somebody that was unclean, or the Roman soldier could require them to do something else. This was a big problem for the people. And Jesus says, I know that it's frustrating to you that this is a requirement, but I'm telling you, go another mile. Now, why would Jesus say that? What does that what does that do? What it does is it creates a spirit of service and a mentality of an expectation of self that is about somebody else, not about my what I need. Okay? So Truett Cathy understood this. And you can see this in has, it, or has anybody ever seen Chick-fil-A workers notice a mom, like a, a mom who's by themselves, and they go and they, they actually help them carry their trays for them, and they, do, they go well out of their way? Do you know that that was specifically something that they brought up as an opportunity to serve? They said, notice the moms with the kids that don't have enough hands to carry all the stuff that they're trying to carry and go help them. Don't just give them food from the counter. Help them get their food to the table. That's the second mile, okay? And so what I want you to see here is I love this because we can apply this to marriage. Let me show you, okay? So this, if this represents our first mile... That's what we call transaction, right? This is transactional. It's our first mile here. This is our requirement. We could also call it a chore. And if we think about our expectations, they're selfish. Because it's how can I get done How can I get this done as quickly as possible and get back to what I want to do? Now, who has experienced that? Raise your hand if you've ever experienced this 
first mile kind of desire, even within your own relationships. Yes. I mean, it is, this is human nature, right? But what about the second mile? Remember last week when we talked about serving and how serving puts us in a place of joy? This is what we're talking about. This is how living in a transactional experience in your relationship shifts from being about you to serving your significant other. And this is where we, we experience transformation. And our expectations... Hey, this is pretty good riding sideways there. No, that's not what I meant. Selfless. This is when you start to experience a selfless kind of relationship. This is what Truett Cathy was saying. I want you to give this to the other people that you come into contact with. And there's one more really important thing about this. Where this is a chore, this is something that I'm required to do to carry the equipment for a certain amount of time, or I'm required to celebrate your birthday. You better celebrate each other's birthdays. I'm required to get you flowers for our anniversary. I'm required to come home after I finish work and talk to you. You think, that, you think that's funny, but some of you will experience that not happening. I'm required to do chores around the house. Life can be full of what feels like requirements, but when we shift from this first mile transactional relationship, I do this, which means you have to do that. And that's how I think about you. This moves from being a chore to a choice. And this is where the powerful character of Christ is revealed. When I choose to go the second mile with you. That means when I've had a bad day and it's hard and I I don't even want to come home, I just want to go crawl in a hole somewhere, that I choose to step into the relationship and engage you in a way that says, I love you. I care about you. I betray my own emotional state at that point in time. Now, does that mean I hide what I'm feeling? No. Maybe it means I choose to step into the relationship and go the second mile and share with you why I want to hide right now. But I don't just go and hide. Because that's how I slip right back into that transactional relationship. Okay? All right. I'm going to move on from this because we've got a lot of ground to cover. But this is the place from which Jesus asks us to step into how we relate to other people. Notice, it doesn't matter what the other person's response is. 
Jesus doesn't say, if somebody asks you to go a second mile, or if they ask you to go, a, go one mile, only go a second mile if they're really kind to you. Only go that second mile if they really act loving towards you, or they give you some good gift, or they meet all of your expectations. He doesn't, there, there is no caveat. It is if they ask you to go with them. Which means when I invest in a relationship and I step into it, this is a soldier, a random person they meet out in the countryside that Jesus is saying, carry this type of of spirit into that relationship. That you may only see them for, you know, an hour. And can you imagine how different your relationship would be if you carried this mentality into your marriage? into your dating relationship as you move towards it. This is the power of, how, of the mind of Christ and how it can transform people in relationships. Okay. So when we go back to the Bible, we see God's plan for marriage in plain view. We have our foundation here. And I want to talk to you just for a minute about how God designed marriage in the first place. You remember last week when I talked about moving back from Genesis 3 to Genesis 2? Well, tonight I want to talk just a little bit about what Genesis 2's frame of marriage is. Okay? So I'm going to read that a little bit to you. It says, The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But, Adam, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed it up, and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. We've heard this before, right? We, we've read this story many, many, many times. What I want to point out is there's some really interesting things in the text that are important for us to understand about how we've gotten to the place that we get to in our relationships and how we need to think about that so that it's unique, okay? So I want you to think back through it Marriage, in, in a sense from a Genesis 2 perspective, is not a general solution to a general problem. It is a particular solution to a very particular problem. Now, what's the problem? The problem is Adam is alone, and there is no suitable helper out there for him. God lines up all the animals. Now, this may sound weird to you, 
But think about it. Think about what the scripture tells us. He goes through and he names them. And what's happening is God is letting him go through the process to say, no, this is not it. This one will not meet my needs. This one is not going to be a suitable helper for me. He, he creates a scenario in which Adam realizes it's not here yet. And I'm still alone. And God knows that that's not good. So what does he do? He creates a woman from Adam and fashions her in a way that when Adam sees her, the literal Hebrew translation, I think, is like, holy cow. (laughs) They probably wouldn't have said that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe they would have. No, that's not. No. (laughs) No. Holy cow. Wow. I just think it's amazing that, that God lets us go through a process of searching until we get to a place where we're like, holy cow, right? But it doesn't end there. It's just the beginning. But what does happen is Adam chooses the one. Now, we are, we are all uh, inundated with this question of, is she the one? I don't know if he's the one. Has anybody heard someone say that? I've said it myself, right? In college, I was always like, oh, I don't think she's the one, you know. I mean, it's, it can be absurd, right? Now, some of you may disagree with me on, on several points tonight, and that's totally okay. It's okay for you to be wrong. <laughs> I, I, I think that we choose the one. And how does that happen? Well, it takes years to get to a point of recognizing who that person is. And when we choose them, we join them in a way that it's a, you know, as Eve was taken out of Adam, God then creates a way for Eve to become, to come back and be part of Adam again. What a beautiful scenario. That oneness is, is amazing, right? So the fact that God goes through this selection process with Adam and says, name them, you know, it's interesting that Adam names Eve, woman, right? He gives her, he gives her a name, the first name that's given. God does that when he enters into deep relationship with people throughout Israel's history. He did that with many people. He renamed Abram, Abraham. He renamed Sarah, Sarai, Sarah. He renamed Jacob, Israel. Jesus renamed Peter. He took his name from Simon and made it Peter and, and changed Saul's name to Paul. All throughout history this has happened and that depth of relationship is reflected in the naming process. 
There's something really interesting here. And I'm not saying that you should go rename your spouses, right? Or, but what I'm saying is that there's a, a communication that God is, is asking that relationship to be special and deeper than any of the others. So, choosing the one. And the bottom line here is that love is a choice. Love is something that we have to, we have to fight for. It's not just a feeling. At one point in my very you know, romantic, poetic, young self, I told Melissa, you know, there are some days when you feel it, and there are some days when you think it, and there are some days when both of those come together, and today is one of those days. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> and then she laughed at me. Not really. But I, I, I think that there's truth in that, right? Like there is a, there's a truth in the fact that some days we do feel it, but most days it's up and down. And, and, and a lot of it has to do with our commitment, not our emotional state, as we move towards one another. And we make those difficult, second-mile choices to step towards one another. Uh, you know, I think that this became clear when Melissa and I had, uh, we, we got married, and then we stayed in a hotel in downtown Memphis, which we actually saw last night as we were walking to Jim Gaffigan. Did anybody go to Jim Gaffigan last night? Yeah, he was good. He was pretty good. Um, so anyways, we saw the hotel. Melissa reminded me of this. But we had to get up at like 4 a.m. and get on a flight. And so we were like rushing. And, um, you know, we didn't really care about like totally like getting all made up or anything. Right. So we get on the plane and Melissa can fall asleep like that when I mean, she's a nurse. So she's, you know, working nights and stuff. And that makes her tired sometimes, as expected. So. We get on the plane about like 15 minutes in, she falls asleep on my shoulder. And she falls asleep and like, this is a family trait. I've seen her family members do it too. <laughs> she falls asleep and she, her, her mouth gets like wide open. And she starts going, <sighs> and it's like, like with every breath, I'm like, Because her breath smelled really bad. <laughs> and I remember thinking in that moment, what have I done? <laughs> you know, I like had this like sort of sinking feeling, which is so silly that like her bad breath could make me have any inclination that like there's some mistake here. But like... But then, like, in the next second, I thought, you know, that choice is made. Like, I don't get to ask that question anymore. What have I done? Like, that's over. It's done. We're going forward, and, and I'm, I'm going that second mile. No matter what. Love is a choice. Love is something we step into, and we step into the commitment of that. And that's where we stay. That's where we camp. That's why our bar is set so high. Because we don't get into the middle of it going, I'm not sure. You're going to have some feelings like that, but you don't stay there. 
You camp in commitment, okay? So here's the next thing. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Next principle that we'll talk about is cheat the many. Choose the one, but cheat the many. What does that look like? What does that even mean? Cheat the many means most cheating in relationships is not good, but this is the kind of cheating that is good. That means that your spouse is priority over everybody else, except for God. And some people will come to me and they'll say, yeah, but what about kids? What about when we have kids? And I will say, your spouse is still priority. Your kids have, may have more needs than your spouse, right? But they are still the priority in your life. And your children need to see that. We can, we can talk about that later on if anybody wants to have a discussion about it, but there's actually research that shows kids have a more stable level of confidence when their parents' relationship is healthy and strong. So if you invest in your marriage now and you maintain that over the years and your kids see that, they are going to be healthier than some of their peers whose parents focus only on them. Don't fall into the trap of giving them everything they want and giving them all the attention they think they deserve. Kids think they deserve all the attention. Okay, You have to regulate it. Cheat the many. You're establishing a new identity together. So let's talk about opposite sex friendships for a second because this is really where some people will disagree with me. I meet with couples all the time who are negatively affected by opposite sex relationships. They can be devastating. And you need to have some parameters set up in your relationship around how to protect from those things happening. Okay? It, I, I will tell you, when I was in grad school and Melissa and I were first married, I was, uh, you know, I was a student in a cohort program, and I had some very close friendships in that cohort program. There was one friendship in particular where there was a girl in the class who would call me all the time. And it progressed to the point where we would sometimes talk for like 30 minutes. And Melissa saw the saw like on a time log how long we had spent talking to each other and she was bothered by it i'm like you're you're worried about that girl like you know to me i had no idea because i was still growing and changing and and having to understand where those boundaries needed to be drawn i still thought about life the way i did when i was in college and it opened my eyes to the fact that even though i had no interest in anything happening with this young lady in my, uh, in my program. That doesn't mean that I wasn't setting myself up for a potential pattern down the road that could open the door. So, you know, what if Melissa's like, oh, well, they're just friends. It's okay. I'm going to be okay with it. And then the next person comes along, except I'm attracted to that one. And I don't have the parameters in place to be confronted about that, or to, to confront the issue with Melissa, then I'm in trouble. 
those relationships have to be pulled back from. And your relationship has to be priority. Let me ask you something. When you think about some other, investing in some other relationship, I really want you to consider what possible good could come out of that other than your own internal fulfillment or your own internal desire. I had a girl who, after Melissa and I got engaged, she called me and she said, Kevin, I just want you to know you've always been my standard and I'm in love with you. That's an awkward conversation. I was like, uh, thank you? <laughs> but I, I think that those things happen more than we realize. Laura had something very similar happen. And we have to be aware of how quickly the right person at the wrong time can step into our lives and meet some needs that we didn't know we needed met. So, there's three blind spots when it comes to uh, cheating the many. There are three things that we get blind, I think, that blind us sometimes. Our defensiveness is protecting something with no real future. I start to fight for this relationship. How could you even think that? We start to shame our spouse, and yet, what future is there really? I, I think that's a good question to ask yourself. What future could I really have in this relationship? that could be good or fulfilling. You, under, you underestimate the potential for unintentional attractions to a form, which, which is what I was just talking about. And your need for this friend, your quote-unquote need for this friend, cheats the exclusivity of your marriage. If you need them emotionally, if they're the person you think about in the morning when you wake up and when you go to bed, if you're thinking about them before you're thinking about your spouse you're in a dangerous relationship and you need, to look, you, need, you need to step up and say something about that to your spouse. Keep open lines of communication. All right, here's the last one. We're moving out of those blind spots and into the final thing, okay? Choose the one, cheat the many, and cleave together. Choose the one, cheat the many, and number three, cleave together. So in verse 24, it says, and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The word for this in the King James version is cleave. It comes from the Hebrew word davak, which means to fasten together. So actually that came from how they would how they would connect scrolls together. They would cleave them together in a way that they, were, they, could, they were, wouldn't be able to be broken. So today, they actually still make scrolls in, in the Jewish um, synagogues, and they cost about $25,000, anywhere from $25,000 to $50,000, and there are only a few people in the world that know how to make these scrolls. And they do it very similar to the way they did it back then. And how they, how they seam them together is unbelievable. But the way that they're made is the entire, uh, the entire Bible, the entire Old Testament, is, is, are on these scrolls that you roll, and they probably weigh 50 pounds. 
and they cover them in the, these adorned things. So this idea that this is a scroll, who knows how long it is, that is seamed together that will be unbroken is the picture that we have of what God is saying our marriage is to look like. That we become something that cannot be broken, cannot be torn. It's sewn together in a way that you cannot distinct one part of it from the other. So what is cleaving together? Cleaving means marriage is about the big O. Everybody went. It's about oneness. It's about being one. And how do you get to that oneness? You know, a lot of people talk about quality time. I think we need quantity time and quality time. So number one, oneness is about spending time together. And we experience that quality and quantity time together. You can't have quality time without quantity time. So remember that. We have to have, we have to talk, number two. So it's time. Number two is talk. Strong marriages have strong communication. You hear it all the time. And if you feel like you're not a good communicator, it's your responsibility to become one, to become an effective communicator for your spouse. You don't get to just lay back and say, well, I just don't, I just don't do that very well. I'm just not real good at it. If it were something else, you would be motivated to do it, right? But when it comes to communication, when it feels uncomfortable, what we're really saying when we're like, I'm just not really good at that, what I think we're really saying is, I don't really like to be vulnerable. I don't really like to share what's going on inside of me. You got to talk. And number three, touch. We need touch. We need to spend time engaging with one another sexually but not just sexually also in ways that are affectionate and for those that are married that's important along the way right that's important for you to not just be sexually engaged with one another but for you to also be um, engaged with all kinds of touch okay All right, I think I'm a little over time, so I'm going to end right there. And we are going to go into our questions that are in the books that have to do with the content. Um, And then I'll come back up here after that for some Q&A. So thanks for listening.